So, all right, admit it. You resent doing these. Like initially, you were like, "All right, I'm raising money f- to help waiters and waitresses." But now I'm kind of like, "All right, I'll plug my shows." But I, how many more are you going to do of these? Hey, everybody! We are back with a new episode of Working It Out. This is your host, Mike Berbiglia. Uh, we have one of the, the most exciting episodes we've ever had today, and it turned out fantastic. There's all kinds of twists and turns. Um, speaking of twists and turns, <laughs> this fall I'm on tour, <laughs> making all kinds of twists and turns across America. I'm twisting to Belmore, New York and Long Island. I'm turning to New Haven. I'm twisting to Philadelphia. I'm t- <laughs> I can't keep this up. Uh, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Boston, uh, Madison. We just added Milwaukee at the Paps Theater. Uh, Denver, and we just announced that we're uh, requiring uh, proof of vaccine uh, or negative COVID test within 48 hours of coming to the show uh, in as many of these theaters as possible. It's, uh, it's, it's, of course, theater to theater and city to city, state to state, but we're working, and in many cases, like in Austin and Milwaukee, uh, it's been, it's working in, the, in New Haven. They're, they're into it. In Bloomington, Indiana, they're, they're into it, which is great. And so uh, we're just trying to do these as safely as possible and bring the comedy to America. Speaking of bringing comedy to America, our guest today is Jim Gaffigan. Uh, Jim and I met, I cold called Jim in the 90s. I've known him for over 20 years. Uh, he needs no introduction. If you've seen his specials on Comedy Central uh, or Netflix or Amazon, I mean... He is a he's a beast of comedy. He's invented a genre of comedy. He's he's created imitators of his comedy uh, unintentionally just because he's so darn good. We have this great conversation. I think this is nothing like other interviews I've heard of Jim Gaffigan. It just feels like this private conversation between me and Jim. And I think that's what's fun about this show. We really get into the nuts and bolts of comedy and what we love about it and what we're fascinated by. Uh, about comedy, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with the great Jim Gaffigan. I'll tell you my honest-to-goodness feeling about the podcast because I get asked this on social media all the time. They're like, are you going to keep doing it after the pandemic? And um, it is an extraordinary amount of work on top of the fact that now that shows are back and I'm touring and you're touring, yeah. it's like, oh, I do the podcast and I do shows. But then to be honest with you, Jim, like I get to talk to you. We don't talk for an hour at I know. a time. Like, sometimes we'll I mean, talk we, for we 20 should, minutes. but we don't. Yeah, that's where that's the only thing that I'm jealous of people that have podcasts is like you want to have these conversations, particularly as you travel – and once you're touring, because initially you tour and you can work with a couple comedians. And then if you're lucky enough, you get to the point where you're touring with one person. And so you don't get, I don't hang out at the cellar. And then if you have a kid or a wife, you know, it's like, how do you sit there and justify after you've been gone? Well, you know what's funny about you is like. My body. We met. My body's funny. My body's funny and my bald spot's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yes, your body and your bald spot, yes. Um, no, you know, you know what's funny about the way we met, which is it's very old-fashioned. Oh, yeah. Which is I called your landline. Yes. In the because 90s. Because through the alumni group. 
to the Georgetown Alumni Association. I was in college. It's so, you know, there's so, there's so much about, I tried to do a joke about this and I could never make it work. Like people are so excited about the past, you know, like people are like, <laughs> they're good all day. So I'm like, I'm not thrilled. It's not like I, you know, like, yeah, there's, there might be times where I'm embarrassed of my behavior if I was drunk or something like that. But like, like the past, I'm not a fan of it. I'm like, you know, like nostalgia is, I don't know, it's weird. It's just like one of those things where I'm like, Ugh! you know what I mean? It's like my 20s. I remember when we met, I was like dating a, a woman that wasn't my wife. You know what I mean? That like, <laughs> yes. it's like I haven't talked to her in 25 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just so weird. Like there's something about the human experience where I think we look back or humans have the ability to look back and and only look at the positive things. But when I look back, I see the entirety of it. It's like I remember horror of like bombing, the the horror of alienation. You know, it's like stand-up is far more acceptable. I was like the only college guy. I felt like everyone else was, you know, uh, I remember – I was described as like a khaki comic <laughs> by uh, by somebody. I you know I don't want to say, but like it was like now is predominantly college educated. But I think back then it was not, or it was people pretending that they weren't. I agree with you, and I think one of the things that people don't realize about stand up is that because it's so popular right now, it's very mainstream stand-up comedy. Yeah. When when you and I started in the 90s, it actually wasn't mainstream. No, it, it actually was, it was a bad idea. It was like, <laughs> yeah. it was, there had been this boom in the 80s. That's right, and that's right. where it was so bad that it was, uh, it was a joke on, uh, you know, on The Simpsons, like being a stand-up comedian was like, it was ridiculous. And everyone that did it, like, I mean, I, I'm older than you and I, you know, but like, it was mostly people that were mentally ill. Like there were, like, you would not tell people, like when you were telling people that you were doing stand-up, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, like you're a bright, <laughs> intelligent guy. Why don't you work for a magazine? Do you know what I mean? Why don't you write? You know, like if you said, I'm going to do these Broadway one-man shows, that would have been different. But like at that point, you were just doing stand-up and people were like, what? When I did open mics when I was in college at like the Best Western in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, I mean, half of the people were, I'm like, you're a comedian? This is not viable uh, as yeah. stand-up. Like, this material is not... And I don't know if... I, and they did not think I was funny. I mean, it was mutual. No, no. When we started, you know, Comedy Central was kind of beginning to resonate. There were definitely comedians. There were great comedians. Like, when I started, there were all these... Like, the generation right above me was so good. Like, I couldn't get stage time. But the audience was not so much trained. So, in other no. words... Sirius, Satellite, YouTube, Comedy Central with like specials, but like, so the audience didn't know how to respond. So like when people are like, why is there kind of this sense of combat comedy 
among comedians that started in the early 90s is because it was combat. Because the audience (laughs) didn't, like when Bill Burr went up, like if you're like a red-haired guy who would go on stage or a blonde-haired guy, you had to figure out something because in that crowd, you were going on at midnight, these people didn't watch Comedy Central. These people, this was like, the Comedy Cellar was like a different place. It was just, you know, this... uh, cool Israeli guy had a room. You know what I mean? It wasn't uh, the, the the preeminent comedy club in the country. And so, uh, you know, whether it's Kevin Brennan or Louis C.K. or Dave Attell, it's like you see it in that performance style of people from the 90s and it the early 90s. And it shifted. Like you and I are very kind of Similar in that, like, there's a, a vulnerability, which is kind of an aspect which is important to ours. But, like, vulnerability, when I first started, was considered, like, absolute weakness. It was just... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Weakness was just something to be, uh, that the audience would pounce on. And you, obviously, you know, like, working at the, at the comic strip, when you first got to New York, it's like, you would see that. I mean, this is before Obama, I think Obama changed everything. For, do you think for comedy? I remember in the early 90s going on stage at the comic strip and there would be tables of, it was like the, the division was pretty pronounced where like if you would go on stage, the only person I ever saw that would get the whole room would be Louis Black because he was a crazy white guy. Right. I think when no, Obama, what you're describing reminds me yeah. of the early 2000s when I used to play the comic strip on the Upper East Side. Yeah. It would be the the crowd would be a little bit segmented. Yeah. And that yeah, the black comics would do well with black audience and the white comics yeah. would do well with white audience and it really was this very stratified experience. Yes, absolutely. And so, but I think also performing in that environment did provide uh some strength. You know, it's weird cuz I always think of like you know, like I remember one time I was at the comic strip and I went on and Jeff Foxworthy was already the biggest thing in the world. And Jeff Foxworthy was there and he goes, yeah, they never, they never got me. And he's like the nicest guy in the world. But like, I was like, oh, that's right. Jeff Foxworthy was in New York. And I'm like, what? And he so like, was? He was in New York. I don't know if he did spots, but like you can't go up through stand-up and not go through New York and L.A. And I was like, oh. And of course, people should know that if they don't know, Jeff Foxworthy is like this, you know, the the blue-collar comedy tour uh, yeah. that he created it. It's so fascinating because also he was an IBM executive. You know what I mean? So like he was this blue-collar sensibility, but he was also college-educated. So New York, you, you did more in D.C., but... Like, I feel like when I started middling, because I never really did that much road. I'm just telling you everything uh, in five minutes. But I never did that much. By the way, uh, middling middling is the, is the opening act that goes after yeah. the host, but before the headliner, which is, which is a, the by, best. by the way, a perfectly fitting title, middling. Yeah. And, but like middling, when I was middling and I would go to um, the DC Improv. Yeah. I mean, the great audiences, great staff, great management, great. I know you worked there, but like just across the board, 
And you'd come back, you know, what people don't realize is that as comedy has become more, uh, you know, embraced and people have become educated, it's, it's moved away from the fringes. You know, like there were those rooms where you'd be like, I don't know if I'm going to get paid. Uh, you know, there was a legendary story of a guy in Milwaukee that would put a gun on the table. Oh, yeah? Though no, I've heard that story a yeah. hundred times. <laughs> the, the, the story used to go that a guy in Milwaukee, we won't say who, would like, was sort of mob tied and he would put a gun on the table and sort of negotiate with a gun on the table when he was paying the comics for the week. Oh, yeah, that was a big thing. And that's where it's so weird because the different journey you have uh, through this process. And that's why when people ask me, like, any advice, I'm like, well, it's changed 16 times (laughs) since I've come up. Like, when I used to do open mics, it was just for other comedians, and many of them were mentally ill. And, you know, great people, but, like, yeah. It's like, I don't know, it's weird, so. It's very hard, yeah, it's very hard to explain. So so to circle back to the way I met you is I went to Georgetown, I was working the door at the Washington DC Improv, I knew I wanted to try to be a comedian. I went to the alumni house, I looked up comedy, and the only name in the history of Georgetown in the alumni house was Jim Gaffigan. I called your landline. You picked up. It was the 90s. You, you said, huh? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy. Go, hey, Mike Birbiglia, I'm a comedian. I'm trying to be a comedian. I go to Georgetown and you go, well, if you're ever in New York, I'll tell you, know, we can go to lunch and I'll talk to you about it. And then I, I lied. I told you I was going to be in New York. Of course, I wasn't. I took a bus and I met you on the Upper West Side at Patsy's Pizzeria. And I was late. You were two hours late and I stayed. And people, whenever I tell people the story, they go, why'd you stay? I go, I had nowhere to go. It was the only reason I came to New York was to meet Jim. Yeah. But we went to to lunch and I quote things. This is is how memory is funny. I quote advice that you said to me at that lunch to this day. Oh, wow. and, and and the because you there's a certain thing about memory where you remember what you remember. And so I yeah. remember you said to me, you go, Mike, you go, don't move to New York. It's some of the best advice you could ever give yeah. a comedian. Don't move to New York until you're you're good enough because people will judge you in show business the first time they see you, and the judgment will last forever. Yep. And yeah. if you're listening to this and you're you're starting out in comedy in Seattle or Denver, wait, yeah. wait yeah, yeah. to move to New York no, or Los Angeles. No, I tell Angeles. you, I think I think I really, I struggled with that. I mean, look, the entertainment industry is there's so many things, and we're constantly learning things. But it is, it's the perception industry, right? Yeah. It's not. Nuts and bolts, it's it's really kind of what someone perceives. So, like, I mean, that's where, like, Letterman thought, thinking I was funny changed. It's, like, dumped over the whole table. And then everyone was like, I always thought you were. And that's hilarious. Also, like, the whole idea that, you know, the thing that about the entertainment industry is that, like, there's, you know, this is, this is what's so fun about podcasts, because this is what comedians talk about also is, the entertainment industry, you always hear, oh, it's all about money. It's not about money. It's not about <laughs> money at all. It's 
about status. And so there is this, you know, the entertainment industry is so risk averse. So that's the point about be ready because the whole romantic notion of someone being, uh, you know, discovered at a soda shop is not only a myth, it's, it's, it's a very misleading lie. It's the opposite of the uh, 10 years to become an overnight success, right? Right. It's just, it also helps. It's a more interesting narrative in the story. Like, that's another thing that I think is really interesting, is that when you get into stand-up the, and you, you have some success, then there's these interviews with great reporters, some of them interesting, some of them uh, fascinated by the topic, some of them just doing a gig. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I think it's fascinating how you have to steer the interview and you also have to create a backstory. So you have to create this story. You're like, all right, I guess um, it's the Letterman was my hero my entire life. Yes, story. that's right, that's right. I was just... You know, or like, you know, I met Jim Gaffigan at a coffee shop. Like someone writing, you know, we're both writers. They need a hook. They need a story about the person who's telling you the story. Um, The other piece of advice you gave me at that pizzeria, by the way, uh, which is smart and I mostly stuck to, is that you don't have to curse. Yeah. Uh, You know, you said it to me in the 90s. You said that to me. And I, I've heard this quoted back to you before, yeah. which is you've described uh, cursing uh, in comedy as sort of the steroids of, of stand-up comedy. I, yeah. and I, I, think, I don't think that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's about what's authentic, right? So, like, it's authentic for Bill Burr or Louis Black 100%. to say fuck and shit. Yes. It's... But if you're somebody who, and New York City's changed so much. I remember when I moved to New York, I was working in advertising and I could not believe how much people were cursing. And obviously I curse all the time. But <laughs> if I'm having a conversation with someone in a setting, you know, I always describe it this way. It's like where I grew up, people would curse. But if you were... uh you would curse if you stubbed your toe. You would curse if you, you were very exact, uh, angry. But you could think of an adjective that's unnecessary. It's not like people are frightened of curse words. And it's, it's very much regional. So I don't know. Maybe in uh, your town in Massachusetts, people fucking cast all the time. You, you're, of course, you know? from Indiana. But like... People through my career just thought I was from the Midwest. They because I oh, talk like so someone funny. who's from the Midwest. I I'm sure you get this too, and it's a very I always think it's like this generic white guy thing. Not only do people think I'm from the Midwest, which I am, but people pretty much universally, with the exception of Hawaii, think I'm from their state, and then also think I'm from their city. So I'll go to Cleveland. People will be like, <laughs> they're like, you're from Cleveland. And I'm like, no, That's I'm not. I'll go to like Alaska. People are like, you're from Alaska, right? And it's it's almost like I'm this prototype of a white guy where people are like, well, obviously you're from New Mexico. And I'm like, no, I'm not from New Mexico. You know what's funny? You also told me at that lunch, You, I remember everything you said. 
We ate it. We ate at Patsy's Pizzeria. I remember we held hands. Do you remember that? <laughs> we held hands. We split a we salad, <laughs> and uh, and you told me, uh, "Are you taking acting classes?" And I I said, "I yeah. am taking acting classes." He goes, "Good." He goes, "Good." <laughs> I say to you, "He goes, good." <laughs> um, you said, "Good." You said, because what we're doing as comedians is acting. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. That's good advice. No, no, it is good advice. And it's, here's my thing about comedians. I think, because I'll say this, I mean, I, I really do love acting. I mean, it's something that I really enjoy and I love I love the minutia of building a character. I love being a partner uh, with uh, uh, these creative people. I love kind of helping someone achieve a vision and stuff like like the whole indie film thing, I love. But all these comedians are actors. But they there is you see it because comedians are also known as some as the some of the worst actors is because they don't there there's an inability to open up to, other things. I think it's an inability to listen. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it might be that. Because they're acting. Do you know what I mean? And I don't want to say any names, but uh, but like just they're doing brilliant characters. And then I would have them uh, do a guest spot on my show. And I'd be like, what? I thought for sure yeah. that you'd be, it's, you know, because in some ways, you know, I took all these acting classes, but I'm kind of I'm kind of like the student type anyway. But but it's shocking when and and it, you're right. It probably is listening, but it is also just it's an inability to just open up to doing something different. Like they, there's that. Um, it's weird because I also have this theory about comedians that. Um, if we've ever gotten, because we talk occasionally, the uh, like there's decades and there's comedians that, there's comedians that can do one special. There's comedians that can span one decade because stylistically things are changing constantly. But I think the decade thing is really interesting because that's similar to acting. Like they can't adjust. They can't, okay, we're not going to say the F word. You'll you'll see comedians go. I, I'm out, and you're like, "Are you kidding? <laughs> are you are you kidding?" It's like <laughs> that was your line. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's it's like you know, there's something very strange about. Uh, I mean, as I'm not saying anything that you don't agree with. I mean, there's something so. I'm so grateful to be part of this community of comedians. I'm so grateful to be associated with. Uh, an art form that is associated with standing up to censorship, whether it be uh, Lenny Bruce or George Carlin. But on the other side, and this is this would get me in trouble because, like, I there is like the reality is is that there is a tinge of censorship in every single person's stand up. So, in other words. When people are like, I believe in no censorship. I'm like, that's bullshit. You're obviously censoring yourself. We censor ourselves in front of individual audiences. Like I did a show last night and it's like, it was the fourth show back. 
and it's weird. You hear a laugh and then you edit based on that laugh and that editing is censoring it, going, all right, they're not interested in anything that has to do with religion. So I'm going to just cut and shift. And so it's weird because on one hand, I totally appreciate like um, the importance of uh, standing up for, you know, like I think, I do think any topic could be funny. But that being said, I also think that it's the rare bird that can pull off uh, a joke about abortion. It's the very rare person that can make suicide funny. Do you know what I mean? That's not to say that. And so like when everyone steams in, when all comedians steam into topics, I'm like, you got, you know, it's not about staying in your lane. It's about your skill set. Stepping away from my conversation with Jim Gaffigan to send a shout out to my favorite mattress in the world. That's right. Helix. Helix mattresses are so comfortable. Uh, Why are they so comfortable? I don't know. All I know is this. (laughs) I went went on helixsleep.com. If you do it, you go on helixsleep.com slash burbags. I took their two-minute sleep quiz. They matched me with a customized mattress. Uh, I've had a great, great nights of sleep on it. I couldn't recommend it uh, more highly. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. And right now, they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our Working It Out listeners at helixsleep.com slash Burbigs. Someone tweeted at me the other day, I'm thinking of getting a Helix because of Burbiglia. (laughs) Is this true? Does he really like these mattresses that much? And I do. I do. That's it. That's the ad. Now back to the show. One of my comedy nerd talks is there's different types of prototypes of comedians. So in other words, there's the the preacher, the clown. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. so Mark Cohen was a clown. The preacher, Chris Rock, yeah. is a preacher. And yeah. uh, Robin Williams is sort of a clown, I guess. Right. And then there's um, the surrealist, like Stephen Wright. Yeah, Bill Burr, Chris Rock are like preachers. Yeah. 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 Lewis Black is a preacher, right? And yeah. I also have this thing where I'm a big believer in that comedy has an aftertaste. Have I ever told you about this? <laughs> that there is. No. This is, uh, I believe that there is. Um, I describe it like this. Like, we all have friends that are, whether male, female, it doesn't matter. But they're super bitchy. They're super bitchy. Mm -hmm. They come in and they tear people apart. And it's funny, but there's an aftertaste. (laughs) And the aftertaste is a certain (laughs) amount of guilt. And also... yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so, funny. by the way, you're. You, this I is love where this analysis. Make, this is phenomenal analysis. This is this is where uh, it's a little bit. You you do this anyway. So this kind of goes back to. Um, I remember I was in in the nineties. I you know the guy who 
I won't say his name. He's a director, but he had the same therapist. So I would go to my therapist and I'd walk out and I'd see him occasionally. I'd be like, holy. And so I gave him uh, a tape of my stand-up. And he essentially told me, he goes, he goes, it's funny stuff. It's pretty mean. And I go, what do you mean mean? And I had all this <laughs> stuff about, and it was mean. It was mean to models. And I was like, yeah, but they're models. Oh, interesting. And so he was like, yeah, but it's still mean. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. We talk extensively about this with my show, Thank God for Jokes, way back when, which is basically that all jokes have a target. And yeah. it's somebody. And so this idea yeah. of like that, that there's no, tar- that jokes can have no targets, there's not that many that don't have a target of some kind. Right, right. It's also, uh, this is another tangent, but I did a corporate event with Brian Regan. Uh, and it was, um, I don't know, it was like uh, 15 years ago. And obviously Brian Regan's one of the the greats, one of the amazing yeah. greats. And it was a co-headline thing. It ended up where he ended up going on first and I ended up going on after him. They wanted it all clean. And, um, and he killed. And then I went on after and they just thought I was mean. Because compared <laughs> to Brian, my sarcasm, do you know what I mean? Like he was bringing more light. And compared to him, I was cynical, sardonic. And it was they, the, anyway, what was I talking about before that? I can't remember. Um, we were just talking about, about, ta- about jokes like models. Like you had, Oh, yeah. Uh, your, the the director friend said yeah. your jokes. Some of your jokes are mean, and you're yeah. like, yeah, but it's models and models. Yeah. You can make whatever. And I know what you mean. There's certain people you think, well, they can take it because they're a big successful blank. You know, they're a successful yeah. actor. They're a successful model. Whatever it is, I know what yeah. you mean by that. I mean, some of it is also kind of like context. It's so fascinating how we understand things. But the thing about put down humor. And this has nothing to do with a roast because that's almost kind of a separate thing. Is that when I have these prototypes of comedians, one of them is the the um, the gossip, the gossiper, whether it be Kathy Griffin, you know, it's all of these people. The thing is, is like they fly up and then they land, and the problem is because. Comedy is, sensibility is always changing. Those targets, in the end, they're human, right? And so in the end, there's always a reveal of more of the story that makes them more human, which only makes the joke look more cruel. Like, look at the way society treated Chelsea Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, Britney Spears, and there's just a certain amount where I think we know, we kind of know that it's, there's some humanity behind it, but we kind of love the quick jab. But so anyway, I think that there's a comedy aftertaste. So like if you bring light, because it also parallels with comedy being kind of evergreen. So like, what, and I think your comedy is like this too, and it's not by design on my 
behalf. It's just kind of luckily it comes out that way. But like comedy specials, it's amazing how they, a lot of them don't age well. Do you know what I mean? Like Bob Newhart's age well. Jonathan Winters ages well. You know what I mean? But like, I mean, Bill Hicks, I remember seeing Bill Hicks and he was brilliant. But like, you listen to it now and you're like, the amount of like just flat out homophobia is just like, it seems like something out of a, a cartoon, you know, a cartoon character of someone who's hates gays. So that's the whole. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, one of the one of the only your a lot of your albums hold up really well, and a lot of Mitch Hedberg's stuff. Oh, holds Mitch up Hedberg, really, really totally, well. totally. You know, we know that like social satirists that are dealing with politics, you know, like as brilliant as Lewis Black is, it's like if he's talking about, you know, Dick Cheney shooting himself, it doesn't hold the weight that it did that no. year. Anyway. Well. I have a specific theory about this, which is, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's I mean, not my theory, but it's just that we're, as comedians, we're always trying to find the line of what's appropriate versus what's inappropriate and then go right to the edge. And yeah. that's why people use the phrase edgy. If he's, the person's edgy, they're close to yeah. the edge. And the problem with that in terms of the co- comedy dating itself is that the, the line just moves. And in the yeah. last 20 years, the line has moved a lot. Yeah. Well, by the way, I think that not only has it moved, but there's also what the audience appreciates has shifted. So in other words, yeah. the, uh, I remember I did an interview with uh, Larry King. I don't want to brag, but I was on Larry King's show. <laughs> and uh, he was... Uh, he goes, when I was first, when I used to do stand-up, I used all the questions I had for comedians were, why are you so filthy? And now I'm asking you, why are you so clean? So like things yeah. change. So it's not just like what's acceptable or the line. It's also what the audience is interested in. Because here, let me also explain this. That, like, when I started in stand-up, there was, the comic strip was very much a joke smith area. So, like, yeah. we're, what well, we would consider Seinfeld. And the original improv, which, believe it or not, was, when I started, was still open. So, like, like Brett Butler was this autobiographical storyteller, whereas... Yeah. Um, a joke teller, like Seinfeld's the classic example of an observation. He he hates it when I call him an observational comedian because <laughs> I just do jokes. What's the, and so, <laughs> but so like the, some of those go in and out of favor. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. So of course. people are more interested in, like we see it in one person shows. People get more interested in the, like they're every 10 years, there's like, a character show, right? There's the Danny Hawk. There's the, do you know what I mean? Sure. There's always kind of like, this person's doing all the characters. And That's then right. there's also the- There's, yeah, Bridge and Tunnel. Bridge and Tunnel was like that. Yes. Uh, Sarah. Sarah Jones, Sarah Jones. Yes, yeah, Sarah Jones. And then of course there's Leguizamo who does a ton of characters. Yes. And you know, and so like- Leguizamo's And Whoopi Goldberg kinda, did it probably- 
Whoopi Goldberg did it probably the best yeah. of anybody. Yeah, it's weird. So it's always changing. So I remember thinking during the pandemic, oh my gosh, I don't know what it's going to be like. And I, again, just, I brought this up in an interview. I'm like, is it going to be, is it going to return to the combat comedy of the 90s? <laughs> Where yeah, my, people are going to be more outspoken if it ever opens up, right? If it yeah. opens up, and it might not be the comedy seller because that now has a level of mystique that is so uh, it attracts comedy diehards. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, but for that sure. that comedy combat of people wanting to, you know, you see it in in uh, you know just the discourse in our country. It is very combative. Well, I think that I, I've noticed a trend recently on social media with comedians I follow, which is that I think stand-up comedians are, are trending right-wing, whereas they used to trend left-wing. And, and, and of course, I'm sort of, you know, being anti-Trump during the Trump years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's as political as I ever got. I mean, I didn't want to get Me political. Too. I just Me felt too. like, it, I thought it was a five alarm fire. Yes, no, well, that's, we, we connected over this during the middle of it. It's just, there was a certain point where you were like, I mean, I was at home with my kids and I was like, I know it doesn't change anything or supposedly that you know it's not motivated by ego it's like i just want to go on the record and say yeah i'm against the monster because <laughs> i've got these kids and they're watching yeah, yeah, yeah. me and you know yeah. it's more important than selling out another show in blank city trust me that's why i hated and you and i were in the same boat that's why i hated for four years tweeting about Trump because I don't want to yeah. talk about Trump. I don't want no. him in my life. And so me talking about it is me genuinely being like, I give up. I have to say something about this because right. I, I can't even have a decent, I can't sleep a, with a decent conscience without saying something about this. This is right. insane. You have to like, you have to go on the record. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did this rant about Trump and everyone was like, you were wasted. And I wasn't at all. <laughs> yes, I and, saw that. And uh, you well, that, famously, if people don't know, Jim yeah. went had a Twitter rant that went sort of yeah. national. I think there was like a CNN article about it because yeah, yeah. your audience, similar to mine, is all over the country. It's everywhere. It's red states. Yeah. It's blue states. We tour everywhere. Like Bob and Tom. We love. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Bob and Tom audience. We you know yeah. we we like people. And and it was hard for me is that people will say to me like. Oh, it must be hard doing gigs in the middle of the country. I go, no, it's great. I love it. Yeah. The middle, yeah. I love the middle of the country. I love the South. I love Texas. Yeah. You know, like, yes, like, like absolutely. It's, so, so, so the Trump thing was disconcerting for me because I was like, no, no, these are not these people in these states are not bad people. No, there's not just at all. a weird cult of personality thing going on that I am very uh, concerned about. Yes. And and so the whole thing about the the you know me going on those the you know it's just a bunch of tweets and it's not like I hadn't uh, stood up at times before like when he was I remember I watched the when he was debating Hillary I remember I was tweeting then but people didn't remember you know what I mean so it's right. 
again, what makes a good article? And so yeah. what was interesting was when it got some traction, I was like, all right, you know, I might have lost, you know, half my audience, you know, because sure. I understand there's half the country that voted for him. And yeah. what I'm seeing is that's not the case. So, like, there oh, is interesting. The, the, the people that went after, and that's not to say that there aren't people. There's probably listening here that people will tweet me or Instagram me and say, you know, I am not, I am no longer uh, going to listen to your stand-up, but, but they're listening to your podcast. Um, is that I think it's just, it's, it's those people, they know that we're not the type to just do it, to say it. That yeah. it was just like, I can't be silent anymore. I can't be sitting there and seeing a nun at the Republican convention telling us that Joe Biden's unethical when Trump is yeah. like this monster who's obviously probably paid for a half dozen abortions. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and so the, but the, what I'm realizing is uh, people, you know, it's not that big of a group of people that care. And also like, yeah. You know, in the t Twitter bubble, you know, it's like, how many people are even on Twitter? It's not even that many, right. I don't think. Right. But uh, but it was weird because you and I talked about getting some of those trolls after you. And, you know, you just block them. But it's still like, yeah. I don't peddle in controversy. I don't like. Me neither. I'm not, I'm not, you know, and we have friends that kind of do that. That kind of like, yeah, I've got people mad at me. It's like, I don't do that. I kind of would rather tell a joke for, you know, not everyone's going to laugh, but like for most of the room rather than like the last row. Stepping away from my conversation with Jim Gaffigan to send a shout out to our good friends at Freshly. Freshly, uh, here's what they do. They do chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door, no cooking required. End of advertisement. Dropping the cooking spatula and saying, that's all it is. It's, uh, they're, they're chef-made meals. They send to your house or your apartment or your office. Uh, grocery shopping is a big pain, right? Especially now. With Freshly, you don't have to. Your meals arrive, they're cooked, and they're fresh every week. F meals like, Mike, which meals? Well, ste steak peppercorn, for example. Sausage baked penne. Chicken pesto bowl. Right now, Freshly is offering our Working Out listeners 40 bucks off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash Burbigs. That's Freshly.com slash Burbigs for 40 bucks off your first two orders. Give it a shot. And you could read my uh, piece about Freshly in The New Yorker. That's a fun one, too. It's got some laughs. And now, back to the show. So this is a thing we do in the show called The Slow Round. And so one of the questions is, like, do you remember a period of your life where you were, like, an inauthentic version of yourself? Where you look back and you sort of cringe, like, oh, my God, that phase... Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, no, there was a time when I stand up, I tried on every type of thing. I tried, 
high energy. I used to smoke on stage. I, uh, <laughs> you did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be Dave Attell. And so I... Yeah. It's so funny. When I started off, I was, you know, kind of like who I am. And then I went through all these different versions. I was high energy. I was, you know... Uh, and then, uh, you know, I landed where I was. That's why whenever someone says, oh, so-and-so is doing Jim Gaffigan, I'm like, I don't care. I mean, they're going to eventually yeah. get to what they're doing anyway. Sure. And they're just going through a process. But you'll see, and we've seen this, a young crop of comedians imitating whoever's hot. Yeah, yeah. Um, who is the strangest neighbor you had growing up? I moved to New York City and I had, I got a rent controlled apartment. I paid $4,000. I paid a guy. And when I got into my apartment, I'm not making this up. There was no tub or shower. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not making that up. But the neighbor was a guy who I think, I'm not kidding. I think he paid like maybe $13 in rent. <laughs> like $13. He was mentally ill. He oh went, gosh. he had been to Vietnam. So he would knock on my door probably once a week and try to sell me stuff that oh I didn't need that uh, oh my he gosh. found. So like women's shoes, he'd be like, hey, how you doing? Do you want these shoes? And I'm like, oh I, don't, I don't, why would I need women's shoes? And he's like, five bucks. But you knew that he was living hand to mouth. So you're like, yeah. so occasionally I'd be like, yeah. you know, just to help. He was a very sweet guy. He was just going around gathering garbage, putting it in his, uh, his apartment, and then occasionally going to different people in the building and trying to sell him stuff. That was how he made it. Do you have a memory from childhood that is still on a loop and it's not even a story. It's just like a thing that you think about from your childhood sometimes. Gosh, yeah, there's, it's so weird. Cause you know, like I'm jealous that you and Joe have the, you know, he's so kind of involved in your business. Cause there's, I don't know, but like, do you have like these things where you can go to a sibling and you're like, what really happened? Um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, I do have that. Yeah, Joe, Joe like, and I have really that. Happened? My sister Patty and I, my sister Patty yeah. and my sister Gina, and we all talk out like, wait, what was the deal with this neighbor or this friend? Yes, or and what yeah. happened at that Thanksgiving? Yeah. Why was it like that? Yep. yep. Um, I would say the thing that is a constant loop that brings me back to my childhood is cigarette smoke. Like my, my, both mm. my parents chain smokers. And so when I smell cigarette smoke, and then it's weird because like, you know, now there's no cigarette smoke, but like we performed where there was a lot of cigarette smoke. Oh, yeah. But so now it's so rare to smell cigarette smoke <laughs> that it brings up nostalgia of my childhood. So like cigarette smoke will remind me of my parents. <laughs> so you know what's so funny? It yeah. What you're saying reminds me of when I used to work at the DC Improv at the door and I would say yeah. smoking or non-smoking. Yeah. It's crazy. Smoke as though it mattered at all. No, smoking or non-smoking. It's just insane. It's just it's insane. And that's where it's like human beings, we're pretty stupid. 
Do you know what I mean? Like we're so stupid and we're so wrong. We're so consistently wrong about everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So this is some material I'm working on. Uh, so I, I've been dealing with a lot of weight, my weight fluctuation during oh, really? the pandemic. I've been up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. What, how often do you have pizza now? One slice. One slice. One slice? I used to do one whole pizza. Now I do one slice. And is that like personal pizza or is that like a real pizza? <laughs> <laughs> this is a joke that I have that I might make it to the show, which is when I see a pizza, I can only view it as a single serving. And more yeah. often than not, it was designed for like three or four people. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I was, I was in Vancouver working on this movie. Brag, brag, brag. No, but I was, I was essentially there by myself. And so indoor dining was done. They, they, they locked out. So you got everything delivered. And so I would order delivery. And then I'd be like, well, you know, I'm going to get a pizza. But, you know, I don't know if. I don't know if that's going to be enough or maybe I'll save some of the pizza. So I ended up <laughs> rationalizing getting two enough. entrees. It's just, oh God, but like there so were funny. individual, there were the individual pizzas, the, the high yeah. end pizzas that are essentially yeah. just, the, you know, like I love how like if it's a smaller pizza, they can charge the same price as a large pizza. They're like, right. hey, Fat ass. We're doing an individual pizza. <laughs> this is made for you, so we're going to give you the same price as the big one. It doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. No, and I that's know. actually a, a, hu a huge part of my problem is that I, I do the shows at night, yes. and then I'm on the road, and yes. then I'm eating from the mini bar. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, one I of the jokes I, I say is, like, I'm triple digits on glass jars of peanut M&M's. Oh my gosh, that is the, and the mini bar is just, there's, because there was a time where it was beyond fiscally irresponsible. It was just like, <laughs> you've got a problem. Yeah. Like you can't afford yeah, yeah, these $12 M&Ms, but you're going to get yeah, them yeah. anyway. And yeah. then I, I also feel like they give you too many. So then you're like, yeah. right, do I oh, yeah. eat? You have to do the whole thing. You have to like, you're no. like, all right, I've never eaten this many chocolate covered walnuts, <laughs> but I'm going to have to. I'm not going to waste 20 bucks. <laughs> right? I've had that. I've had that where you get the chocolate covered walnuts or the pretzels and, and you try to eat a quarter of them and they're just sitting there on your desk yeah. and they, yeah. you got to plow through them. So what is this? What is the theme of your new show? So the okay, it's all about middle age. Hit, it's hitting yeah. middle age and realizing essentially that I'm over the hill, and that yeah. you know when you're on the hill, you can see natural causes, and you're like, oh, they're coming, and there's right, you know right. all, and so I'm trying, I'm trying to like swim and go to the Y and eat better, yeah. and it's basically, and you can relate to this, having five kids, it's like it's basically for my daughter, you know, it's it's so that yeah. I can be, I can mo I can be a good role model and I can be a good yeah. dad and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember I said this too. Uh, I won't say who, but like a friend of mine who's kind of like a very morbid, morbid person who's like very negative, and he had a kid, and I'm like, he goes, any advice? I go, well, suicide's off the table now, buddy. Oh, my god! You know I mean? Because it's like if you have a kid, it's oh so gosh. dark. But like if you have a kid, 
It's off the table, buddy. No yeah, choice. Yeah. Now you can't no, do it. I know. Yeah. You, you know, it's like, forget about like the devastation you would cause friends and family. You can't do that to a child. I know that's yeah. dark, but. Yeah, no, it's, I no, like I mean, stuff. it's. No, I mean, that, that's, that's why I think about, and that's what the whole show is about, is like hitting this point where you go to the doctor and then, you, you know, in your 20s, you go to the doctor, it's like a sitcom. You're like, do, 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 bing, you know? Yeah. And in your 40s, it's like, it's like a mini series. It all, you know, the first yeah. episode ends with a cliffhanger. Oh, there's like a test. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's going to, yeah. you know, you get the results in the second episode. They're inconclusive. So wait a minute. So when you're in your 20s, it's one way. And then <laughs> in your 30s, because in your 30s, did you have your daughter when you're in your 30s? It's yeah. like, because there is something about, you could say in your 30s, the doctor visit is about giving life. And then in your 40s, oh. it's kind of like, it's over, buddy. Do you know what I mean? It's kind <laughs> of like, it's not over. Stepping away from my conversation with Jim Gavigan to send a shout out to Slice, which is my favorite app for pizza and actually food delivery. It's funny because Gaffigan and I are talking a lot about pizza. We're both pizza obsessives. And uh, look, I, I mean, this company, Slice, is a pizza obsessed <laughs> company. I found them by in their their ads were on the subway. And they were like, well, we give more money to the local pizzeria than the app, the other apps that do delivery food. Uh, and I thought, all right, well, I want to support that. That seems great. Um, I highly recommend it. I use it. You can download Slice and order today. Use promo code BURBIGS to get $5 off your first app order. And their reward system is great, too, by the way. Every order over 15 bucks earns you a pizza point. And eight pizza points equals one free pie. You can earn anytime you order from one of Slice's, wait for it, 16,000 independent pizza restaurants. Wow. Slice. And now, back to the show. This is another bit I'm working on, which is I went to a nutritionist, yeah. and uh, turns out they know the same stuff as us. <laughs> That's good, right? It's like, like you yeah, could be like, like, I thought that they were going to, I went to the nutritionist. I was like, you know what? I'm. You could describe your hesitancy, and then you're like, but you know what? It's this important. It's important for my daughter. It's like I want to be a good partner to my wife. I need to learn, and they're like, hey, don't eat shit. Like, that was, <laughs> and then you're like, after you paid $300 for this consultation, right. you're like, there's no magic wand? Right, like, I no, have this I know. thinking. Yeah. Like, I think that, like, I have this belief that all these energetic, like, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like, you know, you always hear about HGH and, uh, you know, testosterone, low T and stuff like that. I'm a low energy guy anyway, but I'm like, are we going to find out that like, there's like, you look at Jimmy Kimmel, like Jimmy Kimmel's got a lot of energy. 
You know, you look at like Conan. He's got a lot of energy. Are we going to find out that they're like, and that goes along with the nutrition. It's like, are they taking like bee honey or what? what is, where do we get that? I know that I feel like shit after I eat a pizza, but like, is there some kind of, you but, know what I mean? But Jim, and I say but that Jim with, you say you're lazy on stage, but you're on a hundred city yeah. tour. It's, it's gr- yeah. You have five kids. I mean, like, yeah. you're in, like, a hundred movies. I mean, it's unbelievable how much you accomplish. So you're getting the energy from somewhere. Yeah, but I just, I want more energy. I want, <laughs> I, you know, but I think I was always tired. I think even as a kid, I was tired. Like, they were like, nap time. I'm like, yeah. I'm ready for it. Like, I don't think I was a kid that was like, <laughs> I'm not napping. I was like, where can I go to nap? Do you know what I mean? Like when you were a kid and you brought, you didn't get to bring in a towel. Like we took naps on towels. Did you take a nap on a towel? Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I'm sure now there's like yoga mats or something like, you know, but, uh, but we would take naps on a filthy towel. And you know, those teachers (laughs) use those towels to clean the floor. They're like cleaning the yeah. blackboard. They're like, yeah, who cares? That's Gaffigan. You know, <laughs> little chalk's only no, going to make you, them whiter. But, you, but you're seemingly, you have an insatiable uh, desire to like create, to act, to perform. You do yeah. so much of it. Like, is there an end game or is there a thing that you haven't done that you're like, I want to do that? Like when you saw my Broadway show, yeah. the new one, were you like, oh, I should put this, I should put my next show on Broadway or whatever it is? Well, that's interesting. I mean, no, I was, I don't know. And it's like, I've never discussed this with you, but like there comes a point where there is ambition and then there's fulfillment. And so like- yeah. Like ambition is, it's still there, but it, creative fulfillment is the thing. And I would guess it's the same way for you too. It's like, oh yeah, there's, you know, I still have an ego. There's still part of me that's like, hey, what about me? You know what I mean? But <laughs> I also know that doing something, uh, you know, a new comedy special or, or, you know, like it's, I think it really is tied up in acting is that you do this acting project and you enjoy the process. It'd be nice if people saw it. It'd be nice if people, you know, complimented, but it's just kind of in the past. You know what I mean? Do I want to be Adam Driver? You know? Yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) That'd be nice to be Adam Driver. He's also from (laughs) India. He grew up like 20 minutes from me. By the way, uh, but uh, I think that ship has sailed. I really do. Although, yeah. yeah, although I've been I've been with you in New York City, and you get recognized a lot, a lot. Because I'm a goofy lot, looking. Lot. I look like a clown. <laughs> I can be seen from far away. I wear a mask, and people wreck. I wear a mask and a baseball cap, and be like, "Are you Jim Gaffigan?" I'm like, "Yes," because I'm this white blonde. <laughs> The thing that we wrap up on is this thing called working it out for a cause. And yes. we if you have a nonprofit that you like to support, I know I, I know of many that you've supported over yeah. the years because we've we've both done benefits for a lot of places. Uh, but if you choose one today, 
I'll link them in the show notes and contribute to them and encourage the listeners to do the same. Yeah, you know, I feel like since this started the same time, because this started in the pandemic, right? So, like, yep. my wife and kids, uh, who are, men, you know, they're crazy people, they started this thing called the Imagine Society. And so, like, we did this thing where we would do dinner with the Gaffigans, but essentially it started... Where you would yes. help out the, you were helping out the wait staff. We were buying yep. meals for for doctors and nurses and yep. uh, healthcare workers, and then it shifted to food banks, and it also sh- sh- they also help out um, homeless pregnant women. So it's the Imagine Society dot org. So that's okay. Uh, Imagine Society yeah, org. and all the money goes right to uh, helping people. It's not like some infrastructure. I, I had heard stuff. it goes to uh, personal sized pizzas for you. It does. It does. Uh, thanks for doing this. This was super fun. And uh, and I will, <laughs> I encourage people in every city in America because I was looking at your tour dates and I'm just going, yeah. you can't even plug a city because you're literally going everywhere. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right. Well, go see Jim Gaffigan. Jim, it's always a pleasure. And uh Let's uh, let's let's catch up soon. Yeah, good talking to you. Thanks, buddy. Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no one. That's gonna do it for another episode of Working It Out with Jim Gaffigan. You can follow him uh, at Jim Gaffigan on Instagram. Or Jim at Jim Gaffigan. On Twitter or TikTok, which, believe it or not, I have now joined. Uh, you can join me on TikTok at, at Mike Berbiglia. I never thought I'd enjoy, by the way, and I, I really do. But um, you can see Jim Gaffigan on tour in basically every city. I mean, if you look on JimGaffigan.com, you just go, oh, okay. He's literally going everywhere or 100 miles of everywhere. Um, so see Jim. He's just one of the greats. And our producers... Of working it out are myself, along with Peter Salomon and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Special thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers. They have a new album. It's so good. As always, a special thanks to my wife, the poet Jay Hope Stein. Our book is called The New One, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad with poems by Jay Hope Stein. That's at your local bookstore. That's coming out on paperback first week in September. As always, a special thanks to our daughter, Una, who created a radio fort made of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who have listened. If you're liking the show, go to a place, a social media place, an Apple podcast location, and you, you just tell your friends... And you tell your enemies, we're working it out. See you next time, everybody.